Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 62, The Apollo-Soyuz Test Project. Moscow is go for docking. Last time, we took a look back at Skylab. We looked at its origins, its nearly disastrous launch, its nearly miraculous repair, and its remarkable contributions to science. We also zipped through the nine astronauts spread across three crews who lived aboard Skylab, an interesting mix of Apollo veterans, future space shuttle crew members, and one-hit wonders. But with Skylab left in orbit to its then-uncertain fate, it's time to turn our attention elsewhere. Between Skylab and the space shuttle is one more mission that is all too often overlooked, the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project. In 1957, the Soviet Union fired a shot across America's bow by launching a small beeping ball into low Earth orbit. Its glinting light passed through the night sky and served as a signal flare, kicking off the geopolitical confrontation known as the Space Race. Spurred by the unthinkable prospect of their enemy claiming the highest ground, both the United States and Soviet Union threw themselves into a crash program of epic proportions. Their lunar goal was of slightly dubious concrete value, but endless advancements in technology, organization, and national prestige flowed from the aft ends of their launch vehicles, just as surely as rocket exhaust. But it didn't take long for both sides to look at the staggering effort required to establish a presence in space, and then look at their opponents and wonder what could be accomplished by joining forces. Thoughts like that take time to germinate, and first the US and Russia had to spend a few years duking it out in orbit. But once Neil and Buzz shut down their DPS engine safely on the surface, the race was over at least the first leg of it, the thought of cooperation started to become more and more appealing. This may disappoint some listeners, but I'm going to totally skip over all of the political and diplomatic wrangling that it took to get the ball rolling on this flight. I don't understand it as well as the technical stuff, and we have a lot of stuff to get through, and other sources would do a far better job than I would. So, suffice it to say that NASA, and their counterpart, the Soviet Academy of Sciences, agreed to fly a cooperative mission one more an Apollo and Soyuz spacecraft, would dock. This is one of those things that is harder than it sounds, and it sounds pretty hard. At a high level, the mission concept was pretty simple. Apollo and Soyuz dock, the crew transfers back and forth between the spacecraft, and a few science experiments get done. I clearly have some complications up my sleeve, so let's just get into it. The first one, and perhaps most obvious, the docking mechanism. We've been over the Apollo probe and drogue docking mechanism multiple times, so I'll just very quickly remind you how it works. On the command module end was a probe, basically a metal pole with some latches and shock absorbers. It was directed into the drogue, which was basically a big cone with some receptacles for the latches on top of the lunar module, or for the last few episodes, the Skylab MDA. Once the probe latches engaged, a condition known as soft dock, the whole mechanism was retracted, which engaged latches around the periphery of the docking tunnel, hard dock. After hard dock, the probe could be removed and the crew could move through the tunnel. The Soyuz mechanism was sort of similar. It also had a probe on the front and it also interfaced with a drogue, but there was no tunnel. There was no way to transfer crew without performing an EVA. The mechanism also required more precision due to some more intricate electrical connections, and it was significantly heavier than its Apollo counterpart. On the flip side, it allowed for multiple dockings, while Apollo was limited to just a few. 
Both docking mechanisms did what they needed to for their respective vehicles, but they were not compatible. So engineers from both sides put their heads together and came up with a solution that would allow both spacecraft to dock. The Androgynous Peripheral Attach System, which I've also seen called the Androgynous Peripheral Docking System. I'm going to call it the APAS. Instead of a stick and a funnel, this involved two rings, each flanked by three big pedals. The pedals were used to guide everything into place before latches could engage. The rings were supported by shock absorbers, which helped soften the impact of the two spacecraft coming together. Once the initial latches were connected, similar to soft dock, the mechanism would be retracted, pulling the two rings tightly together and creating an airtight connection. Then all you had to do was open the hatches on either side, and you had a pressurized tunnel. The Soyuz was modified with this APAS hardware instead of its usual docking mechanism, but Apollo was prevented from doing the same by one more nagging problem. As you'll recall, once launched, the Apollo hardware uses a pure oxygen environment at about one-third sea level pressure. This approach has a number of advantages. A single gas system is easier to design and more robust in flight, and the lower pressure meant that the spacecraft didn't have to be quite as reinforced. Of course, the trade-off is that pure oxygen introduces a hefty risk of catastrophic fire. Wary of this danger, the Soviets had always used a mixed-gas cabin atmosphere, even in flight. Not only that, they flew at full sea-level pressure. So if Apollo and Soyuz were to dock directly, the second you open the hatch, it would blast a ton of mixed-gas air into the Apollo side, sucking the cosmonauts along with it, and probably blowing out a window or some other nasty thing. Not good. Modifying either spacecraft to accommodate the other's natural cabin atmosphere was way too difficult, so a new piece of hardware now enters the picture. Allow me to introduce the docking module. The docking module was essentially a big cylinder about 10 feet long and 5 feet wide, though from the outside it looked kind of like a weird lumpy cylinder since special equipment had to be placed on the outside and then covered in thin metal. Actually, come to think of it, it was sort of like the lem in that regard. On one side of the docking module was a good old-fashioned Apollo docking drogue, just like the LEM or Skylab. On the other, there was the new APAS system. Inside was a third hatch that separated the docking module into two parts. In order to transfer between the two spacecraft, crew members would leave one craft and enter the docking module, closing the hatch behind them. Then, the atmosphere in their half of the DM would be slowly changed to match the atmosphere on the other half. Once equalized, the center hatch could be opened and the crew members could float on over to the other side. At no point would all the doors be open, and it made transfers slightly cumbersome, but it's actually a pretty slick solution. There were a bunch of other issues that we won't have time to get into, but I can give you a quick taste. How do the two sides exchange tracking data? What format will the data be in? Which groups in these organizations receives it, and what do they do with it? When should the launches be? Both spacecraft have mission rules requiring specific amounts of sunlight remaining in the day at launch and entry to ensure proper lighting during potential search and rescue operations. Which ground stations would be used? Actually, this mission is notable for being the first to make use of a communication satellite in geostationary orbit. The ATS-6 satellite provided coverage for one whole side of the planet, making communication a little easier. This caught my eye since these days human missions are tracked using a network of geostationary satellites, TDRS, but that's a little bit down the road. 
ASTP is an interesting mission because it's not only a clash of country cultures, but also engineering cultures. Every engineering project is a big pile of compromises, and it was cool to see what compromises freaked out the other side. Russia was concerned about pressure integrity in the Apollo CM and DM, presumably since they'd be dealing with higher pressures than usual. The U.S. was concerned about flammable material in the Soyuz, something they never really had to worry about before thanks to their sea-level mixed-gas environment. NASA offered the Soviets the fireproof material they had developed for Apollo, but the Soviets wanted to take a crack at it themselves. In the process, they actually improved on the NASA design. Of course, there were also some pretty big social-culture differences. While staying in a Russian hotel during their training, the American astronauts wondered if their rooms had been bugged. To test the theory, one loudly bemoaned the fact that the bar downstairs had no pool table. The next day, a pool table mysteriously appeared. Way to play it cool, Russia. Flying this mission would be five space travelers, three astronauts, and two cosmonauts. So for the first time, allow me to introduce our Russian crew. Flying as commander of the Soyuz would be Alexei Leonov. Alexei Leonov was born on May 30, 1934 in Listvyanka, located in south-central Russia. He joined the Soviet Air Force in 1953 and began training as a cosmonaut in 1959. He's actually been featured on the podcast before during his first spaceflight, serving as pilot on Voskhod 2. Beating Ed White to the punch by only a matter of weeks, Leonov became the first person to perform an extravehicular activity, or EVA. During the problematic EVA, he was forced to partially vent his spacesuit in order to fit back into the expandable airlock, but made it safely back inside. This was his second of two space flights. Joining Leonov in the role of Soyuz flight engineer was Valery Kubasov. Kubasov was born on January 7, 1935 in Vyazniki, located in western Russia. He attended the Moscow Aviation Institute, where he studied aerospace engineering. Before being selected as a cosmonaut, he worked on the design of the Voskhod spacecraft that his ASTP commander flew. He joined the cosmonaut ranks in 1966 as part of Civilian Specialist Group 2, which seems to be somewhat similar to NASA's scientist-astronaut groups. Between Soyuz 6, this flight, and Soyuz 36, this was his second of three space flights. Commanding the American side of the mission was an old friend of ours, Tom Stafford. We first introduced Stafford way back on episode 16, Gemini 6A. It was there that he flew shotgun on NASA's first ever piloted rendezvous. He flew again as command pilot on Gemini 9A, rendezvousing with an Agena, and as commander on Apollo 10, performing a full dress rehearsal for the first lunar landing. You may be noticing a theme here. Every one of Stafford's missions focused heavily on rendezvous. With a mission this high profile, he was one of the best possible choices for the role. This was his fourth and final spaceflight. Flying as command module pilot was a spaceflight rookie who also made a brief appearance in our narrative, Vance Brand. Vance Brand was born on May 9, 1931 in Longmount, Colorado. He earned a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Colorado and then later a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from the same institution. He flew with the Marine Corps from 1953 to 1957, including 15 months in Japan as a fighter pilot. He was working his way through a variety of test pilot roles when he joined NASA as an astronaut in 1966. 
We first met Brand as part of the Skylab 3 and 4 backup crews, where he was almost called upon to perform NASA's first rescue mission. Instead, this is his first of four space flights. With no lunar module, there was no lunar module pilot on the flight. And with science on the docket but not the primary focus, there was no science pilot either. What this mission did have, though, was a docking module. So flying as docking module pilot was a rookie astronaut that we all know and love, Deke Slayton. Donald Kent Slayton was born on March 1, 1924 in Sparta, Wisconsin. Slayton joined the Air Force back before there even was an Air Force. Back then, it was still part of the Army and called the U.S. Army Air Forces. He served in World War II as a bomber pilot, but spent the entire time with his eye on the new nimble fighter planes being developed. After the war, he went back to school and picked up a degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Minnesota. When NASA put out the call for America's first astronauts, he was putting new fighter jets through their paces as a test pilot over the desert near Edwards Air Force Base. Slayton, I hope you'll recall, was selected as one of the original Mercury 7. He was scheduled to fly the next mission after John Glenn's Friendship 7 in a flight he planned on calling Delta 7. Instead, concern over a mild intermittent heart fibrillation grounded him. Despite numerous doctors putting their reputations on the line and saying that Slayton was fine to fly, NASA just couldn't justify it. It was a personal injustice, but I can see why NASA made the call that they did. Yeah, Slayton probably would have been fine, but for only your second ever orbital flight, and with six other healthy guys ready to go, why take the risk? In the intervening years, Deke stepped into the role of Chief of the Astronaut Office and then Director of Flight Crew Operations. He was the guy who made the tough calls on who flew what missions. Neil Armstrong's name will be known for all of history because Deke Slayton put him in that spot. Over the years, he never gave up on regaining his flight status. He quit smoking, mostly quit drinking, quit caffeine, and tried any number of medical tricks that might work. While it seems they never quite figured out what did it, eventually, the fibrillation stopped. After a comprehensive cardiac checkout, Slayton was returned to flight status in 1972 and chosen for this mission in 1973. He was originally going to be the commander, with Apollo 13 astronaut Jack Swagger taking the third slot. But Swagger got caught up in the Apollo 15 stamp scandal, and there was concern that despite Slayton's seniority, he was still a rookie after all. So it was docking module pilot for Deke. This was his first and only spaceflight. After all the diplomacy, engineering, and training, launch day finally arrived. July 15, 1975. The Russians launched first, departing the Baikonur Cosmodrome at 5.20 p.m. local time. The Soyuz-U launch vehicle deposited Leonov and Kubasov into a 222 by 186 kilometer orbit with a 51.8 degree inclination, and they later circularized for easier rendezvous. Back in Florida, the Apollo crew was awoken shortly afterwards. The crew enjoyed a traditional astronaut breakfast of steak, eggs, orange juice, and coffee, but this time Deke was on the other side of the table. The timing of Apollo's liftoff was dictated by the orbital plane that the Russians were in. Imagine a globe, one of those classic schoolroom ones with a metal arc that holds it in place above a stand. If you rotate the Russian launch site under the arc, you can imagine that that metal arc represents the orbital plane of the Soyuz. 
As the day progresses, the globe will slowly rotate until eventually Florida will be under the same arc. That's when Apollo launches. Soyuz isn't coming to them, Florida is coming to Soyuz. So it only had a fairly limited window in which to launch. But when the time came, there were no serious issues, and at 3.50pm local, the last Saturn 1B ignited, sending Stafford, Brand, and Slayton on their way. After staging, Slayton radioed down, Man, I tell you, this is worth waiting 16 years for. Apollo was initially inserted into a pretty low orbit, just 173 by 155 kilometers. This is somewhat typical for a rendezvous mission. By launching below and behind their target, Apollo would gain ground on them orbit after orbit. They would gradually raise their orbit as they went, getting closer and closer to Soyuz's altitude, which decreased the rate at which they were closing. 40 minutes after main engine cutoff, Stafford popped the CSM off of the S-4B and turned around for transposition and docking. Wait a minute, transposition and docking? Docking with what? There's no LEM! Ah, that's true, but they couldn't launch with the docking module on top, so instead it was nestled underneath the CSM where a LEM would normally go. Stafford moved in, and despite the sun getting in his eye, was able to snag the docking module with no trouble. Space trivia moment, this is the last time the Apollo docking mechanism would ever be engaged in space. Of course, knowing that this was its last chance to act up, the docking mechanism acted up. Rather than easily disengaging and allowing the crew to enter the docking module, Vance Brand had to carefully disassemble it over a few hours, but Houston provided the instructions and it was no big deal, just a hassle. The next day was spent phasing, getting closer and closer to the Soyuz. The crew passed the time doing some science experiments and checking out the docking module. All of the crew's tasks were made easier by the fact that no one was suffering from space sickness. They also took advantage of the space available. When sleeping, Stafford slept in the command module, Brand slept in the docking tunnel, and Slayton slept in the docking module. After that was the big day. July 17th, docking day. In preparation for docking, the Apollo crew closed the hatch to the docking module, and the Russian crew closed the hatch between the orbital and descent modules of the Soyuz. Just real quick, the Soyuz is made out of three modules. A service module, which serves basically the exact same role as the service module on Apollo, a gumdrop-shaped descent module, where the crew sits for launch, entry, and when piloting the vehicle, and the orbital module, which was slightly roomier and had a table and bathroom. Only the descent module comes home at the end of the mission. As the two craft neared each other, Capcom Dick Truly radioed up, Apollo Houston, I've got two messages for you. Moscow is go for docking. Houston is go for docking. It's up to you guys. Have fun. With its higher margins of attitude control fuel, Apollo played the active role, with Soyuz remaining stationary, whatever that means with two spacecraft moving at over 17,000 miles an hour. In the end, the docking was smooth as silk. Soyuz had to rotate 60 degrees to properly align the docking collars, but that was it. At 12.09pm Houston time, the two spacecraft gently nudged into each other, latches slipping into place. In Russian, Stafford called out, Contact, and in English, Leonov called out, We have capture. In fact, for the entire mission, the Apollo crew only spoke Russian when interacting with the Russian crew, and vice versa. The Apollo crew spent something like 15 hours a week for years practicing the Russian language, 
And Slayton said when he added up all of the training for the mission, the most time-consuming part was learning Russian. He also said he considered it the most difficult part of the whole thing. One sort of funny side note on this, in the official transcript, anything that was translated from Russian is placed in parentheses. So for this line, it said capture, surrounded by parentheses. But for whatever reason, when Stafford laughed a little bit later, they also put that in parentheses. I guess all the language learning efforts paid off because Stafford was apparently laughing in Russian. (laughs) With the two spacecraft docked and stable, Stafford and Slayton clambered into the docking module, closing the hatch behind them and leaving Brand in the command module. At all times during the mission, there would always be at least one American on the Apollo side and at least one Russian on the Soyuz side. As Stafford and Slayton waited for the pressure to equalize, Leonov and Kubasov opened their hatch and waited on their side of the docking module. After 17 minutes, the pressure change was complete, the center hatch was opened, and at 2.19pm, Tom Stafford and Alexei Leonov shook hands in orbit. What followed was a lot of pre-choreographed pomp and ceremony. Five flags from each country were exchanged, photos were taken, and headsets were passed back and forth as Gerald Ford and Leonid Brezhnev, the leaders of their respective countries, passed messages up to the crew. After all the excitement, the four men settled down to a meal around the small table in the Soyuz orbital module. The Americans were momentarily alarmed when the Russians attempted to get them to take a sip from several tubes labeled Russian Vodka, Stalichnia Vodka, and Old Vodka. But there was no need for concern, their Russian crewmates were just having a good goof on them. The tubes were all full of soup. After their meal, Stafford and Slayton headed back to Apollo for the night. The next day, Commander Stafford and Command Module Pilot Brand made their way into the docking module, leaving Slayton on his own in Apollo. When the center hatch opened, Brand moved through to the Soyuz and Leonov moved through to the Apollo side. For the next four and a half hours or so, the American command module pilot and Russian flight engineer hung out in the Soyuz, while the two commanders and Deke Slayton stayed in Apollo. They then swapped back, with Stafford and Leonov in the Soyuz, and Slayton, Bran, and Kubasov in Apollo. With only one transfer left, and with all the prearranged speeches, photos, press conferences, and TV broadcasts complete, Stafford made a short, unscheduled speech. His speech was in Russian and was directed at the citizens of the USSR. He said, Dear Soviet television viewers, Allow me, as the representative of the United States of America, to transmit to you best regards from the people of the United States. This is a happy time for the whole crew. We are happy, very happy, to receive, to be together here in the first international flight after two years of joint preparation and training. We astronauts and cosmonauts not only have worked together, but we've become good friends. I'm sure that our joint work, friendship, will continue even after this flight. I too am sure, dear television viewers, that this flight will open the way to further cooperation and friendship between our two countries. Let the things that went on yesterday in our flight and today be a good thing for both our peoples. Thank you and good luck. Leonov followed that with his own brief statement in English, saying... Our joint flight is the beginning of a very great cooperation in space. And both men were right. Though relations between the U.S. and first the Soviet Union and then Russia have certainly had their ups and downs, they've continued to work together in space. Both sides are too invested in their shared assets and forged relationships to allow something as silly as the issue of the week to get in the way. And relationships like that are important. 
countries that talk to each other are countries that are more likely to get along. After more hugs, photos, and a final handshake between Deke Slayton and Valery Kubasov, at 3.49pm, both crews returned home to their spacecraft. But the mission wasn't quite over yet. The next day, the two spacecraft undocked and began an experiment requiring some precision. With Slayton at the controls, Apollo backed away from Soyuz, maintaining a precise line with the sun. Once at the appropriate distance, Apollo essentially made an artificial solar eclipse from the perspective of Soyuz, allowing the Russian crew to photograph the sun's corona. The two vehicles then moved into redock. In order to prove that either spacecraft was capable of docking, the American mechanism retracted into passive mode, and the Russians' docking equipment was put into active mode. Though Apollo would still be the one moving around in deference to Soyuz's more limited fuel margins, this would simulate Soyuz being the active spacecraft. Slayton brought Apollo in for a successful docking, but there were no crew transfers this time. They undocked for the final time three hours later, at 10.26am Houston time, and prepared for another experiment. This time, Apollo would slowly fly around Soyuz, shining light off of special reflectors on the Russian vehicle. By measuring the light that was returned, scientists could learn more about the composition of the tenuous atmosphere at this altitude. In the course of all these maneuvers on that day, Apollo used more RCS fuel than any other day in the program, 290 kilograms. Eat your heart out, Terra. And with that, they went their separate ways. Two days later, on July 21st at 5.51am Houston time, Soyuz touched down in a dusty cloud as its last-second retro-rocket pulse cushioned the blow of returning to Earth on land rather than water. But Apollo still had a few days left on orbit to collect some scientific data. On their second-to-last day in space, the crew buttoned up the hatch to the docking module and jettisoned it, sending it drifting slowly away. Then they performed a series of burns to end up in the same orbit as the DM, but trailing it by about 300 kilometers. After that, they established a radio link with the uncrewed DM, which remained powered on for this experiment. By looking at the known orbits of both spacecraft and the range data from the radio connection, it was possible to notice slight disturbances in the Earth's gravitational field. If you do that for a while, and map it out, you can learn where the mass concentrations of the Earth are located. Maps like that are really important when planning out long-lived orbital missions, geostationary satellites, or like doing geology, probably, I don't know. So that's a cool final contribution to science by the docking module. When July 24th rolled around, after nine days in space, it was time for Stafford, Brand, and Slayton to come home. At 3.38pm, the SPS engine fired up, the last SPS engine to do so, burning for 7.8 seconds and slowing the whole stack down enough to return to Earth. The crew jettisoned the service module and positioned the command module for entry. Entry itself, the last re-entry of an Apollo command module, proceeded with no issues. But that changed when the time came to deploy the drogue chutes. A checklist item was missed. Either Tom Stafford didn't say it, or Vance Brand couldn't hear it over the rush of wind outside. Brand thinks that the latter was more likely, but the reason isn't really important. The checklist item instructed the crew to switch the ELS Auto and ELS Logic switches to Auto. ELS stood for Earth Landing System, and flipping these switches would allow the ship to automatically pop the cover off the top of the vehicle and deploy the drogue parachutes. 
Noticing that the chutes did not automatically deploy, Slayton told Brand to manually deploy them, which he did. The drogue chutes deployed no problem, but they forgot something else. As the spacecraft wobbled around underneath the drogue chutes, the reaction control system continued to fire its thrusters, fighting the parachute to keep the spacecraft at the proper orientation. Normally, switching the ELS auto to the auto setting would inhibit the thrusters, but since they manually bypassed that switch, the crew also had to manually disable the thrusters. This would be bad enough, since there was a possibility that the thrusters would damage the parachutes. But okay, no problem. The crew quickly switched off the thrusters. But where it gets really bad is that right around this time, pressure relief valves opened, sucking ambient air into the one-third sea level pressure atmosphere on board. It just so happens that the placement of the valves allowed toxic hypergolic fuels, still venting from the RCS thrusters, to get sucked into the cabin. The crew actually saw the toxic fumes swirling into the cabin vents. Thinking fast, Commander Tom Stafford activated the main parachutes early in case they lost consciousness, which Vance Brand briefly did. They splashed down, of course in stable two, pointy end down, and Stafford quickly unbuckled from his seat so that he could get Brand an oxygen mask. When Frogmen recovery crew appeared at the window, Slayton gave a thumbs up without really thinking, indicating that they were alive, but not really conveying the severity of the situation. Stafford manually deployed the airbags so the vehicle would flip to the stable one position, Brand regained consciousness, and the whole vehicle was lifted on a crane onto the deck of the USS New Orleans. The incident left all three men coughing and trying to blink the irritant out of their eyes. In his understated way, Deke wrote in his autobiography, quote, that was a rough ride. I hated it. And of course, being tough guy test pilots, no one thought to mention the incident to the doctors, going on with the usual ceremonies in the ship deck. Eventually, they mentioned why they were coughing so much, and the horrified medical staff whisked them away for examination. It turns out that they were exposed to a nearly lethal dose of the toxic propellants, and their lungs were starting to fill with fluid. In the end, there was no lasting damage done, but it was a really scary moment. Really, other than Apollo 1, this was the closest a crew came to immediate death in any of the Apollo flights, and I'm willing to throw Apollo 13 in there. With the successful, if lung-straining, splashdown of Apollo, it is time for another tradition here on The Space Above Us. It's been a little while, but every time we arrive at the final space flight of one of the original Mercury 7, I like to do an epilogue to see where they ended up. Deke Slayton had an unusual career. Recruited as one of America's first spacemen, only to be put on the bench almost immediately. Rather than returning to his former career, he hung in there, drawing strength from the knowledge that his place was in the spacecraft. After shaping history in the role of the Director of Flight Crew Operations, he finally had his chance to fly on the Apollo-Soyuz test project. After his successful flight, Deke moved on to a task that was firmly on the critical path of the space shuttle, the approach and landing tests. We'll be dedicating a whole episode to these soon, but essentially these tests put the shuttle orbiter through its paces to ensure that it could handle the all-important one-shot dead-stick landing at the end of a successful re-entry. Deke stuck around at NASA, retiring on February 27, 1982, though those last two years were mostly as a consultant. He was involved in some of the early shuttle flights, even flying a chase plane during the landing of STS-2. After leaving NASA, he got bit by the racing bug and became involved in Formula One racing. 
No, not the one with the speedy race cars and my boy Daniel the Honey Badger Ricardo showing the world how late braking is done, but rather Formula One air racing. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Speed, danger, precise controls, air racing seems right up the alley of a former astronaut. He also dove into business, sinking a lot of time and energy into early commercial spaceflight efforts. The industry just wasn't really ready for that big of a move yet, so none of it really worked out, but it's fun to imagine an alternate timeline where Deke Slayton is a senior executive at SpaceX or Blue Origin. Deke Slayton died on June 13, 1993, at the age of 69, after a two-year struggle with brain cancer. Deke led a full and fascinating life that was defined by far more than his nine days, one hour, and 28 minutes in space. If you'd like to learn more about him, which I highly encourage, definitely check out his autobiography, written along with Michael Cassett, titled Deke, U.S. Manned Spaceflight from Mercury to the Shuttle. Farewell, Deke. You'll be missed. The Apollo-Soyuz test project is a mission that is fascinating on its own, produced valuable scientific data, and also paved the way for future cooperation in space between the United States and Russia. It took a while for them to meet up in space again, but in 1995, when space shuttle Atlantis docked with the Russian space station Mir, it was with docking equipment that could trace its heritage back to this flight. And for a program that started as a crash effort to defeat the Soviet Union on the world stage, ASTP served as the perfect storybook ending. Two superpowers, if not quite reconciling, then at least proving that they could work together and could hope for a better future. And if this was a story, that would be the perfect place to end it. Long ago, I even toyed with the idea of ending this very podcast with the Apollo-Soyuz test project. But life isn't a story. Even a well-concluded narrative continues, because life continues. Mercury, the X-15, Gemini, and Apollo had all been relegated to museums, documentaries, and history books. But NASA was just getting started. Next time, we will introduce the Space Shuttle and explore its origins. With six marvelous spacecraft, 30 years, and 135 missions, we're going to get very familiar with the Space Shuttle. So let's rewind the clock and see where it came from. Why wings? Why solid rocket boosters? And why was it so hard to get America's first reusable spacecraft off the ground? Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.